This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Jeffrey Miller, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of New Mexico. Jeffrey got his undergraduate degree in psychology and biology from Columbia University and his PhD in psychology from Stanford. And this episode is a little bit different from your normal Marketing Trends episode. Jeffrey talks about biology, evolution, and how human psychology affects the field of marketing. It's a cool change of pace and gives a valuable and different perspective from your average Marketing Trends guest. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Jeffrey Miller. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org in sunny San Francisco. Lauren Vaccarello, what's going on? Not much. Enjoying a finally beautiful day in the Bay Area. I know, right? Um, And on the other line, we have a really exciting guest. Jeffrey, how's it going? It's great. Glad to be here. So Jeffrey is an evolutionary psychologist. He has written multiple books, one of them, which we highly recommend that all of our listeners check out called Spent, Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior. And he is a professor at the University of New Mexico. We are going to get into a ton of psychology for marketers. Um, It it won't exactly be a psychology 101 for marketers, but we're going to get into a bunch of different reasons why this is important for marketers and how you can use it uh, for your teams and all of that stuff. But first, Jeffrey, I wanted to to get into why did you write the book, Spend, and what was your motivation for this? Well, what happened was I had gone to Britain to do my postdoc. Like I was trained PhD psychology, and I was always interested in human emotions and preferences and behavior. And I went to England to study further, and I ended up in a job at University College London in an economics center, a game theory center. And I was trying to get the economists interested in human preferences and choices. And they didn't really care because they have these very formal models of what people want. But I ran a conference where it was all about the origins and nature of human um, consumer preferences. And we had a lot of marketers from the London area come to the conference. And they were really interested in the psychology, unlike the economists. So I thought, wow, these are my people. They actually can see the links between the kind of psychology that I study and practical applications in selling things and delivering value to consumers. So from then onwards, that was 1999, I got kind of obsessed with um, consumer behavior for a while and trying to understand how human nature kind of fits into the economy, but not in the kind of abstract economic way more in terms of the the nitty gritty of why specifically do people buy stuff and why do they pay price premiums for certain kinds of features in their products. And that's what kind of drove me into writing spent, which came out about 10 years ago. And I think it's an interesting, 
think it's an interesting dive into consumer behavior and why it's so critical for marketers to get it right. And I think a lot of times we as marketers tend to be product first or product backwards or or whichever you want to do it instead of kind of like this focus on the customer, focus on the consumer, which has kind of come about more recently. And I want to get into, you know, you recently gave a talk at Ogilvy um, and you've been talking recently about this idea of virtue signaling. Um, what is, what do you mean by virtue signaling and, and how is this something that, um, that companies and marketers are doing? Virtue signaling is just the idea that as humans, we want to show off our moral virtues, like that we're kind and good people. And there's lots of specific moral virtues you might want to display to somebody. Like you might show off your kind of fidelity and romantic commitment through a marriage ceremony, right? Or you might show off your kindness through adopting a certain um, political position, like saying, I support universal health care, or we should have universal basic income or whatever. And I think there's a deep human instinct to want to show you're a good person. And consumers want to do that often through the goods and services that they buy. Companies want to virtue signal, we're a good company, we take care of our employees, we're ethical, you know, we, we respect government regulators, blah, blah, blah. Yet, there's been very little discussion, I think, in the marketing world of kind of how do you understand exactly how consumers are connecting their personal ethics and their personality traits and their political views to the whole world of consumer decision-making. I think virtue signaling kind of has like a, almost a negative connotation at times. Uh, do you say this with, uh, it seems like you, you don't really believe it, it has a negative connotation or it, it might not have it all the time. Um, is this a negative or a positive thing or is it just something that we do and is neither, neither negative or positive? I, I take kind of a neutral view of it in, in a way. So like, in the 2016 presidential election, what you often had was kind of uh, conservatives accusing liberals of virtue signaling. So it became kind of a, a right-wing meme and very negative. Um, but I see virtue signaling as kind of a human universal, like everyone does it a lot. And we deceive ourselves about how much of it we're doing. Um, centrists do it, leftists do it, people on the right do it, atheists do it, religious people do it, um, business people do it. And, you know, I'm involved in the effective altruism movement, which is kind of a way of trying to connect virtue signaling to reason and, and evidence more than most people do. But I see it as a neutral thing, like humans virtue signal the way that humans breathe and think and, and fall in love. It's just... Um, something we have to to deal with, and I think it's important for marketers to think consciously about about it. What are some examples of that that you've seen that might be ways where companies do a good job of this? Um, that that virtue signal in a way that shows their customers who they are as a company. I mean, we talk a lot of times at, at Mission about being mission driven and. Um, you know, in, with a with a recent guest, we talked about this idea of you know 
having something that the company is standing for, some change that is big enough um, that as the company grows, they can actually achieve this this kind of change that they're looking at? Are there certain examples that you see where you're like, this is someone who's getting it right or at least uh, doing a good job? Well, for example, if you wander around a Whole Foods um, you know, grocery store market, it's just full of virtue signaling. If you put on these goggles, right, and you actually pay attention to um, what are the brand names and what do they kind of feature, you get your, you know, organic food, your shade-grown coffee, your ethically sourced free-range um, beef, your, you know, cruelty-free cosmetics, etc. And almost everything in a typical Whole Foods, it's like hundreds of little companies trying to compete to allow consumers to feel ethically better about themselves. And once you put those goggles on, you start to see it everywhere, right? You see it in people buying hybrid or electric cars to kind of save the planet from global warming. You see people supporting certain kinds of charities to show off that like, I'm a good person because I care about cats or dogs or the poor in other countries or the homeless or whatever. But I think even very mainstream companies um, as long as they're thinking at all about public relations and re uh, relations with their consumers, their investors, their employees, even relations with government regulators, everyone's trying to show off we're good, but they're showing it off in uh, an amazing diversity of ways. Do you think it's people are trying to show off that they're good? Do you think it's consumers trying to align purchases with value sets. How do you see this evolving over time? I think what's happening is you have a sort of deep inbuilt instinct to display and signal that you're good, but you're not doing, you're not carrying that out in a sort of Machiavellian or cynical or, or, or sociopathic way, right? We're not even aware most of the time when we are virtue signaling. Like if you go on a first date with someone, Right, and you kind of drop into the conversation like, "Oh, I, I went to Africa and, and helped people, you know, cure disease for a year after after college." It's not that we're kind of cynically trying to manipulate, you know, the potential mate into thinking we're a good person. It's just we feel driven to share something ethically good and, and honorable that we've done, and I think that's mostly a good instinct. And you can you can see it as sort of a consumer's trying to find a fit between the personal values and a, and a product. Um, but I see it as a more active thing where consumers are actually thinking at some level, I have a certain set of virtues and good traits. I wanna go out and forage and find goods and services and products that actually allow me to signal those traits. And that's what my book Spent was all about. Yeah. And what I think is so interesting is you talk about maximizing human happiness. I think this is a fascinating idea. And um, you said, you know, what science did for perception, marketing promises to do for production. Um, what did you kind of mean by that? I mean, I think it's such a powerful idea that marketing helps companies make people happy. And I think we talk about that kind of like from a from a high level standpoint, but what was your what was your like research that led you to this? I think it was realizing that you know fundamentally what matters to people is not material wealth. 
it's not maximizing income or wealth. It's maximizing things like your social status and your sexual attractiveness and the prestige that other people kind of grant you for knowing interesting things. And all this so, sort of social and sexual currency, that's what really matters to people. And making an income and spending it on certain goods and services is often just a path towards that kind of social and status and sexual success. Um, and I, I got to that perspective mostly through studying sexual selection in biology, where a lot of what animals are doing, particularly male animals, is sort of converting food into ornaments, literally. Like a peacock will eat you know, a certain amount of food and turn it into an ornamental tail to attract a peahen. And that's a really common pattern across literally millions of species. And I think humans do a lot of the same thing. We, you know, go to work, make money, make an income, just like a peacock foraging, and then kind of turn it into a set of ornaments that we show off to potential mates and neighbors and coworkers and, you know, people on social media, you know, Instagram or whatever. So I think there are deep biological roots to this. It's not a new thing at all. It's millions of years old. I love the idea of the way that our brains have hard been hardwired to to be happy is that by all the things you just laid out. And I think that we talk a lot about how story is one of the things that we are hardwired to remember different things. Um, and story is as old as um, you know, people could communicate. How does story play into this modern marketing or even potentially old marketing as, you know, as we evolved as humans and as things have changed dramatically, that this is a way that we can remember things more effectively and ultimately is a tool for marketers to get people to uh, remember the, the things that they want to sell. I think story and narrative also run pretty deep. We don't really know exactly when language evolved, probably about a million years ago, more or less. But if you imagine, you know, being in a hunter-gatherer tribe and sort of sitting around the campfire every evening without social media, without television, without instrumental music, you know, without your, your Spotify playlist, what kind of entertainment do you have? You have people telling jokes and stories, right, for hours every evening in a tribal yeah. society. And so that's really important. And the people who tell the best, most entertaining, funniest stories tend to get status and prestige and extra mates. And everybody also starts to spin their own autobiographical story. So when they meet someone new and, and the person says, hey, what's your story? That's literally an invitation to tell me a short version of your autobiography, preferably in about two minutes or less. And so everybody has this sort of narrative of their life in their head that they're kind of ready to share with people um, that kind of picks out things that, that matter to them. And often those things are virtues and forms of goodness or ways of helping other people. And that's what we, we really care a lot about. What about spent has changed? You know, this is about 10 years old. Like if you're to write spent volume two, now with the rise of exponential rise of Google and Facebook, um, the rise of mobile and online, um, what is, what's the things that you've seen that you're like, well, this has now changed a little bit or are the principles the same, but the tactics have changed? 
I think the principles are pretty similar, but I was writing spent circa, you know, 2004 to 2007. And there has been this explosion of social media since then. And also through consulting with various companies, Fortune 500s, nonprofits, market researchers, advertising agencies, I've learned a lot about marketing that I didn't know before. You know, psychology PhDs don't typically get a lot of training in consumer behavior and marketing. So most of your listeners know more about marketing than me in a lot of ways. But I think seeing the rise of social media and the ways that people are connecting sort of the most intimate parts of their lives that they might share on, on Facebook or the things that matter the most to them on uh, Pinterest or Instagram, the whole sort of visual worlds that they inhabit, connecting those to the brands they care about opens a lot of new opportunities, I think, for innovative brands and sort of psychology savvy marketers to add a lot of value to people's lives in totally new ways that might not even require buying the product initially. It just kind of requires like making a connection between the consumer and their social media use and the brands that they kind of love or aspire to own or identify with. Um, And I think that can happen potentially years before, you know, any given consumer actually buys a product. It, It could start in, you know, middle school, high school, college, whatever. One of the things that we've seen, which is so funny, is uh, with when AirPods came out, that you have people putting things in their ears that look like AirPods that aren't, and then posting on social media like they have AirPods, but they actually don't. I mean, what a weird, what a weird thing! Like, why do people do this sort? I mean, not, not that you have all the answers here, but like, why do people, you know, post or wear fake, um, you know, fake handbags or all these sort of things? as the status symbols, like if, if you can wear the fake thing and the real thing, then why would you buy the real thing? Like, it's just something that I think is, is interesting. Um, when you have so many copycats out there that look like something totally different. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the mate book kind of analyzing fake high-end watches, like fake Rolexes, analyzing, um, imitation diamonds all the way from cubic zirconia to, to um, moissanite and also looking at the knockoff industry and sort of, you know, the Chinese factories that kind of imitate high-end designer products. And I ended up thinking that the surprising thing isn't that people buy knockoffs. It's, it's that more people don't buy knockoffs. I mean, a lot of them are literally physically indistinguishable from the quote real product. I think the answer to this is actually something Rory Sutherland at, at Ogilvy talks a bit about. It's self-signaling. It's signaling to yourself, right? If you buy even the best quality sort of um, imitation Rolex for 500 bucks, that's as good as a $50,000 Rolex, you know, you might get some of the social benefits of sort of displaying it, but to yourself, you know, you're a faker and people don't like to signal to themselves that, you know, I'm a fraud. That that doesn't make people feel at ease with themselves. So I think the self-signaling is really important to understand for any marketers who have a kind of high-end brand that's easily imitated. You want to kind of subtly nudge the consumer into realizing part of what I'm paying for 
with this premium brand is self-respect. It's self-signaling. It's, it's saying like L'Oreal ads used to say, it, because I'm worth it. Well, I mean, that's about earning it though, right? Like that's, I think that that's part of the thing that people, like if you were using this to attract someone else or to, um, you know, show everyone at the office that, you know, you have this thing, you know, the nice car, bad house scenario where everybody in town sees that you have a nice car, but you actually uh, have a, you know, live in a dump or something like that. It's, it's not about you earning the thing. When you buy the Rolex, it's like I saved my money or I made a bunch of money and now I can go buy this thing that I know that I earned, even if it's something ridiculous like that, you know, is the cost of a house in a lot of countries. Yeah, you're, you're convincing yourself that I've earned it and therefore I should have a certain amount of self-respect and, you know, what we call subjective mate value, the sense that I would be a valuable mate if you're single and you're kind of on the the mating market. And also, of course, it's an incentive, right? If you're young and you're working really hard, long hours, you know, you're a junior marketing executive and you hope to become a sort of brand manager and you're putting in those hours and the creativity and, and the sweat and you're sort of like, if I get the next promotion, then I can buy myself the BMW 3 Series or whatever. It's not going to be a credible incentive to you if you're like, well, I'm promising myself the three series, but really I know I'm going to get a used Hyundai, right? Once I get the promotion. So it's a matter of kind of convincing yourself that um, the carrots and sticks that you're dangling in front of you are actually going to be real, right? When I was tr working really hard to get tenure, for example, I sort of promised myself if I get tenure, I'm going to buy a like a used BMW 540 because that'll make me feel great. And then I got tenure and I kind of flaked out on myself and I didn't do it because I thought this is, this is ridiculous. They're not actually that, that good or reliable, <laughs> but I never, it never quite sat well with me that I didn't actually follow through on that. And I'd actually created a Facebook group called um, first tenure, then the BMW that attracted some of my academic sort of, colleagues who were also tenure seekers at the time. So I think one thing marketers could think about is how do consumers use products as sort of incentivizing systems for themselves, like things that, you know, you want to dangle in front of yourself. Like if I get a mate and then we have a wedding, we can have this at the wedding. Or if I get this promotion, then I'll finally deserve, you know, a better apartment, better house, whatever. What about, you know, you, when you, when you work with teams, when you do consulting and you work with marketing teams and you're talking through some of this, what are those things that you've seen that surprised you about how marketing teams are inefficient or maybe potentially unwilling to kind of adopt this, you know, ideology um, or things that just kind of surprised you in general uh, of ways that, like kind of the obvious thing where like, well, don't you see that you should be doing more of blank? Well, one thing that really surprised me, honestly, with a lot of marketing teams is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the folks who go into marketing have studied a bit of psychology in college and they've taken classes on consumer behavior and so forth. But honestly, consumer behavior research is often where like ancient social psychology theories go to die. <laughs> you, see an, you see an amazing number 
of sort of examples of, oh, here's a personality psychology theory that like nobody in personality research has believed for 30 or 40 years, but it's still in the consumer behavior textbooks, right? Or here's some social psychology finding that has failed to replicate for 20 years, and yet it's still in the consumer behavior textbook. Um, the Myers-Briggs personality inventory, for example, is sort of one of my uh, bugbears because like nobody in personality psychology takes it seriously and has no it for kidding. 30 years. And yet it's still really commonly used in corporations and talked about in business schools. And people are astonished in marketing. If I say you guys do realize that like this is kind of nonsense compared to modern personality scales and theories. So that's, that's been one surprising thing to me. Then what's the, what's the better option? I mean, I, not that, you know, I'm not sitting here doing Myers-Briggs um, with new hires or anything, but I am curious to, to hear what you think would be a more uh, appropriate tool to use. Well, the so-called big five personality traits um, have really been the dominant um, way to, to talk about individual differences since about 1990. And they're widely used in psychology. Uh, the scales are good. It would be easy for marketers to use big five. I think they're, they're better for a bunch of technical reasons that I've talked about in various videos and interviews. And likewise, I think measuring general intelligence or thinking about intelligence as a variable among consumers rather than proxies for intelligence like education level or social status or social class. Um, I think marketers are missing a trick in terms of not thinking clearly about kind of the IQ of their consumers and how do consumers want to display their intelligence. And also how do you do messaging that actually works for consumers who are at sort of different cognitive levels right? And different vocabulary sizes and different styles of reasoning. Let's go into that a little bit more because I think that's really interesting. Or do you have any like examples or, or things that you've seen of people who have just kind of missed the mark on not using messaging at multiple levels? Um, you know, whether it's cognitive or, or whatever, because I think one of the toughest things that marketers face is figuring out why people buy. Um, I think salespeople a lot of times, you know, try to test and assume and figure that out and have these calls. We just had a great conversation with a CMO who talks about how their marketing team sits in on, on calls all the time. And Chris talked about how, you know, getting to that root cause of why they buy, you know, and I always think it's fascinating that People buy for, you know, to get their boss off their back. People buy to get promoted. People, you know, buy to feel cool or because they like the salesperson or the company or whatever it is. There's all sorts of different reasons other than the problem that they're solving. Do you have any examples that uh, of teams that you've worked with, uh, with those type of scenarios? Well, I think what you often get if you're trying to do consumer research, right, is you can do surveys, you can do focus groups. Both of those rely on consumers kind of knowing themselves, having self-insight, and then being honest about their true motives and preferences. And humans are not very good at that. You know, we lie to ourselves a lot. We project a certain persona um, to others, even if it's strangers in a focus group. And 
there are often really good reasons why we're not consciously aware of, of sort of how we're trying to show off through products. For example, if you talk to a makeup company about sort of why do women buy a particular brand of makeup? And my girlfriend watches me watch like a lot of makeup videos on YouTube, like Jeffree Star and so forth. So I know way more about makeup than most guys do. Um, if you ask most women, like, why would you spend like premium dollars to get makeup that you know is high end rather than just sort of mid range? It's very hard to kind of admit to yourself that like, because I'm worth it, because it makes me feel better, because it makes me feel more sexually confident if I'm going on a date, because maybe my husband will be more, you know, attracted to me, or maybe because I'll feel sexier and more desirable. There's so much sexual shame that consumers feel about these sort of mating desires that it, it's kind of hard to pull that stuff out of them if you're doing surveys or, or interviews. And a lot of what my day job involves is uh, sex research and trying to understand mating strategies and mating markets. And humans are absolutely terrible at giving straight answers to a lot of questions in the, in the kind of sexual domain. I mean, I, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think, you know, and we have a, we have a really good, uh, really good episode coming up soon um, with someone who works in that market. And I think our, our, uh, our listeners are really going to love because talking about that stuff, you know, is awkward when you see the, when you're sitting with your parents and you see the ad for condoms or whatever it is, come on the TV, like people feel um, awkward. Why do you think that people kind of feel awkward around those things? And then how would marketers, you know, leverage that kind of awkwardness to potentially talk to them in a way that doesn't make them feel ostracized or awkward or weird in any way? I think it's very tricky and it really depends a lot on, you know, what you're selling and what your consumer group is. So for example, look, if you're trying to sell stuff to like sex positive polyamorous people in the Bay area, that is a very, very different market psychologically than trying to sell stuff to let's say a Mormon housewife in Salt Lake city. Um, it's not that the Mormon housewife necessarily, you know, is less interested in sex or values it less highly or experiences less pleasure than the Bay area, you know, burning man polyamorists. It's just, you've got to talk to her in a very different way and be able to kind of connect her sexuality to her values and ethics and marriage and community and, and, you know, church group and so forth. And in my experience working with marketing teams, a common denominator in marketers is they tend to be politically left. They tend to be Democrats. They tend to be kind of cosmopolitan. They tend to work on the coasts and they don't tend to understand kind of conservative middle America very well. Like you can do research on them, but there's often not a kind of intuitive connection. And I think that's really important for marketers to be humble about and to acknowledge. That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I've done literally no research on that. Uh, so um, I, I would say that 
you know, kind of in the tech world where we spend a lot of our time and Lauren, I'd, I'd love for you to, to weigh in on this. Um, I find people to be extremely focused on how to position like their companies in front of people who want to do better in their work life. I find that even talking outside of talking about politics, talking about religion, talking about anything other than work in a professional setting. And again, this could just be coastal because I grew up here, but even in my time in the military, which is, which is different. I mean, I always found that people are so focused on work that it's the other stuff that never gets talked about. I mean, Lauren, what do you, what do you, what have you seen? I mean, I do agree. And in, in the, the work setting, it is, well, you know what? A little bit about it in the work setting. It is people are absolutely thinking and talking a lot about work. But if you're thinking about how do you forge, you know, deeper connections with your coworkers, it goes beyond a lot of it goes beyond just work to shared interests, shared values, and finding ways of connecting. And I do think this idea of connection becomes really important. And whether you are, you know, a coastal liberal or you know, the far other end of the, the spectrum, sort of this general search for, for human connection in the workplace and then also outside. And I even think about, you know, marketing on the B2B side and how important the overall psychology is when it is, you know, marketing on the, on the B2B side because there's part of it that comes down to, you know, what does this say technology purchase say about me but a lot of it goes to how am I going to be perceived at work? How am I going? Is this going to make me more successful? Is this going to make my company more successful? And what are the, the overall outcomes around it? That becomes a really, really fierce motivator. And, you know, even on the sort of the B2B purchaser side, a lot of it, a lot of purchase decisions used to be based along the, in this sort of very fear-based mentality of, I don't, I don't want to be at risk. I don't want my job to be at risk. I want to be safe. And now there's kind of different motivations and to, to Jeffrey's point, maybe different virtues that are being shared on less risk adverse, but more, what can I do to be perceived as innovative, successful, you know, fill in the blank that that's really interesting. Outside the box. Outside the box. That's what everybody wants to be an outside the box thinker and they want to like make bets and find things. But then you have other leaders where they're like, hey, just just don't up don't upset anything. Things are working great. Just don't, you know, don't do anything like that. Yeah. So I mean, I guess there's a percentage of people that are not incentivized to think outside the box. But I would say that that's the like the prevailing things. People want to seem like they're in the know. Yes. Yeah, and I think, um, well, I did I did this um, training once for 500 market researchers at a Fortune 500 company that does a lot of consumer good branding, and they're like recognized as very good branders. And I asked the folks in the room, okay, you guys sell a lot to Middle America, and you want to understand like average Americans. Hands up if you vote Republican, and I get like three people. Hands up if you're a member of the NRA, nobody. Um, hands up if you go to church at least once a week, pretty much nobody, right? So marketers are not a random sample of the kind of American 
like ideological spectrum or political spectrum, religious spectrum. They're in a bubble, right? And it's not that they talk politics all day. It's just they kind of self-select as sort of open-minded, cosmopolitan, liberal people into marketing rather than, let's say, accounting or rather than, you know, working in petroleum companies or whatever. But they don't realize how far outside the mainstream they actually are. And I guess my main point is that makes it hard for them to understand, like, how do ordinary consumers do their virtue signaling and what virtues are they trying to show? I mean, I think this is one of the things that um, why agencies have struggled in a huge way recently um, because you have products that come into the market like Yeti or like, you know, whatever, or Squatty Potty or something like that. These markets that can reach people in a way that that's, it's by people who had the problem, right? It's like, this is a classic situation where somebody had this exact problem and they can speak to building a community of people that also hunt and fish and, you know, need, you know, coolers that keep stuff cold for a long time. And you can kind of build a personality around that rather than kind of, uh, you know, a group of people in a room thinking about, you know, how would you make, you know, the Yeti brand more, more likable? Do you see that? What do you see in terms of trends? Do you think that, um, we know that those type of products are valuable because they can go direct to consumer now and you have way more advantages as a growing business going direct to consumer rather than relying on inventory and shelves and all of that stuff. How do you see marketers changing uh, in that way? Well, I think that, you know, the general picture is like when I was growing up, your community was your literal physical neighborhood and the people you interacted with the most were people who kind of showed up physically to the same clubs and sports teams and and schools and social events. But now with social media, everybody's persona and identity is so mixed up with the online groups that they're involved in. And those online groups are so sort of self-selected and so politically and, and ideologically homogenous, aesthetically homogenous even, that I think the way to, to reach people now is to kind of really understand how are people kind of like assorting and self-segregating online into these communities and paying a lot of attention to what are they talking about and what are their values and what are their needs and preferences and to try to kind of make your brand fit into think of it more as like how would we connect to a particular Facebook group right or or kind of Instagram community rather than thinking in traditional demographic terms. I love that. Like age or sex or, you know, race or whatever. And 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 where region doesn't necessarily matter as much. Like it matters for certain things, but not for others. I, I think there's a huge opportunity for marketers to create tools and create value-added things within segments. Like if you wanted to, you know, create a software term, if you're marketing a software tool, and you wanted to create a really fun tool for a group of people to use that might get them into your funnel. It's like if you made a tool for Game of Thrones fans to like easily, I don't know, like match up different characters and know what their 
you know, baby would look like if they had a baby or something like that. It's very top top. Like that would be a fascinating marketing idea because the people who are Game of Thrones fans are extremely ravenous for content and they love consuming stuff like that. And it would be a way to add value uh, into virtue signal that like, hey, we love Game of Thrones. You guys love Game of Thrones. You all love Game of Thrones. Like we, we made this for you. Here you go. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. Um, my fiance and I are like planning a wedding and I've sometimes thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool if like we, we could have, you know, the groom and bride dressed a little bit more in kind of a Game of Thrones style than a traditional kind of wedding tuxedo and, and white dress style. But the, the only option for that is, you know, you go on Etsy and you try to find people in, like making custom stuff out of their home. As far as I know, there's no major retailer who's sort of done a, a co-branding deal with Game of Thrones where it's like, um, here's a reputable clothing company that can provide formal wear, party wear, you know, bridal wear that like taps into that market. But I imagine that could, that could be quite successful. And you make a great point that even apart from social media, with streaming TV, people also really heavily identify with what they watch. You know, what are their favorite Netflix series? And I think there's a lot of um, potential for brands to think about how do we connect with, you know, the stuff that people watch or binge watch for hours a day. And those communities are now, you know, I, I forget the exact numbers, but back in the day, it was like all in the family was watched by like, it's something crazy, like 50 million Americans a week or something wild like that. There's nothing like that now. There's nothing even close to like that anymore. It's basically the Super Bowl and that's it. And now you just don't have those opportunities. So this idea of finding smaller pockets of super dedicated people around different, you know, content clusters or topics or, or things like that. I mean, I think is a fascinating way to cross cross cut this. I've always thought this about fantasy football podcasts, for example, that the only people who advertise on fantasy football podcasts are people who are selling like sports betting stuff or other fantasy football stuff. I'm like, all of the people who play fantasy football have a totally different, like they all have regular jobs. They all do some sort of thing. And the only way that we kind of identify them, and this is just kind of podcast audience stuff in general is like, Hey, they're people. So we can sell them toilet paper because everybody needs that. Um, But I think that as we get more sophisticated with selecting these smaller groups of people that aren't, probably as small as you think and giving them goods and services that are not 100% directly applicable, but there's probably a really strong correlation to certain other products. And we've seen pockets of marketers doing this really well, but I think it's going to be the new normal going forward. Yeah. I think you also see this with, you know, sexual minorities, like somehow, for example, Subaru through some pretty subtle ads, I think throughout the nineties, was able to get itself associated with being very LGBT friendly. Yeah, that's a great point. Being like the go-to car. If, if you're like um, a lesbian, Subaru's for you. They weren't really advertising that to straight people, but they were kind of doing it on the down low and somehow they became sort of the LGBT friendly car brand. Now there's absolutely no logical reason, right? Why lesbians need like four wheel drive cars that have, particular kind of cargo space or whatever. 
it's a totally arbitrary association. But the fact that Subaru was willing to kind of stick its neck out and say, we are friendly to the sexual minority was hugely appreciated by that group. And no other car company seems to have um, been as successful in, in doing that. So I think, you know, if you've got a, a product and you're thinking about how do we reach people, it's not necessarily the kind of logical group that you might think needs your product the most. It might be there's some weird little group of folks like the Game of Thrones fans or the fantasy football team fans or whatever, where they're like your rival companies aren't going after them, but they're low hanging fruit. They'd be easy to reach. You know, the ad buys might be really cheap. And I would, I would expect to see a lot more kind of creative thinking in those directions, I hope. I want to talk a little bit about influencers um, here before we, before we get out of here. Um, this is something I'm absolutely fascinated by. I think we're at the very dawn of the influencer age of how uh, with, you know, there's micro influencers and all this sort of stuff. But this is what's going to go happen over the next 10 years is, is going to be really interesting, especially with how the social channels either enhance or clamp down on this stuff. But why do you think people care what influencers do? I mean, part of it is just the human propensity to, you know, imitate the beliefs and desires and preferences and purchases Mm -hmm. of people we respect. And that is something you can see in every culture throughout history as it's called status biased cultural transmission, which simply means people tend to imitate people they would like to be like and who they respect. Um, and I think there's, a, there's now in America a sort of mass frustration with mass media and mainstream news that means people don't trust the kind of traditional channels and traditional kind of influencers. They want authenticity. They want a little bit of rawness. You know, a lot of people I know would much rather watch like a YouTube video of Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or whoever, rather than like mainstream Fox or CNN news. And so I think there's going to be this, this amazing new proliferation of influencers, uh, mostly through YouTube channels and podcasts and interviews. And it's going to be this massive free-for-all And it's going to be very confusing (laughs) to marketers because you'll really have to keep on your toes about, you know, who is influencing which group of, of consumers in what ways and what's the common denominator? Like what are the common traits like among people who watch Joe Rogan interviews, for example, they're not that easy to characterize either in terms of traditional demographic groups or political spectrum or, or anything else. And yet there's a certain kind of aesthetic and a certain mindset, you know, that's associated with all those folks. And I think the future of marketing is, is trying to track that and figure it out. Um, Jeffrey, this has been absolutely awesome. Before we get out of here, last question, you know, when you sit down with marketing teams and when you're doing consulting uh, work, and by the way, we highly recommend, um, you know, we'll link up all Jeffrey's stuff afterwards. So you can, you can reach him out. Um, what's that one piece of, you know, advice or thing that you want to leave them with to make sure that they think, uh, you know, to, to borrow a phrase, think different about people, about marketing to people and about like why they buy. 
I think the most important thing I would say to marketers is have a respect for your profession in terms of what it adds to people's lives. It's not just about taking an existing product and, and selling it to people. It's about connecting the product to people's virtues and passions and interests and communities in a way that actually makes whatever the product is more valuable to people. You know, something that they can tell stories about, something that makes them feel like, oh, I can, I can signal this, this virtue now in a way that I couldn't. And that literally adds psychological and economic value to the products that you're selling. So, you know, marketing gets a lot of flack from people who see marketers as just sort of, you know, cynical, manipulative sociopaths who are just trying to get people to buy stuff they don't want to buy. Um, I take kind of the opposite view that the marketers are the ones adding real psychological value to products that otherwise don't really mean very much to people. So have some, have some confidence in your profession and the fact that it's, it's a good thing that actually helps people for real. I love that. And it is so awesome to hear that and refreshing um, because it is an empowering thing. And we're just, uh, we're so happy that you could be on the show. Um, you can find him on the Twitters at Primal Poly um, and, uh, and we'll link up his books uh, and everything in the show notes. Um, Jeffrey, this has been absolutely awesome. Any, any uh, final thoughts or stuff people should check out? No, it's really fun. Thanks a lot for talking. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. 
Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.